My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and the host of the Coffin Fellows podcast. This season, our podcast is produced in partnership with Mighty Capital and features different Coffin Fellows as co-hosts. In this podcast, we dive deep into the personal narratives of some of the most successful names in the venture capital industry, but we're not here just to explore their highlight reels, however impressive they are. From failures and formative learning experiences to inflection points and aha moments, we discuss the real, authentic journeys that each individual goes through to become the best version of themselves in order to best serve the entrepreneurs they invest in. Covering various themes in venture capital investing, we speak with the world's top leaders in capital formation, all from a place of authenticity and vulnerability. Together, we'll unravel what truly makes a great venture capital investor. Now let's meet today's host and their guest. Welcome back to the Coffin Fellows Podcast. Today, we are joined by Hian Go from Open Space Ventures in Singapore. Hian, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast, Jeff. <laughs> it is great to have you, Hian. It's, it's, I always love just the opportunity to catch up with you anyway, but I'm pumped to tell the world a little bit about what you're doing in Singapore and what you're doing with Open Space Ventures. Let me first, let me first brag about you a little bit. So Heon is the founding partner of Open Space Ventures, which is a Series A venture capital fund focused on technology and internet companies in Southeast Asia. Uh, Open Space announced the closing of their, their latest fund, a $200 million fund. Uh, this, I think it was this year, yeah. And they have about $425 million in assets under management across three different funds. Uh, Open Space Ventures was one of the earliest inventors in Gojek, which is one of the um, the ride-hailing uh, upstart that went that was huge and is huge in Southeast Asia. What I love about your background, Hian, is that you were also the founder of the Asian Food Channel. We got to talk about that a little bit. And then Hian is also a reserve officer with Singapore Navy, uh, which is also something really interesting in your background. So many things for us to talk about, Hian. Well, where do we start? Let's let's go into. Well, why don't you first tell us a little bit about Open Space Ventures and what you're doing there? Absolutely. So, Open Space Ventures was started almost a decade ago now, 2013. And initially, the idea was to transition to be a venture capitalist after doing 10 years as an entrepreneur. And I love food, so I did a food network and I sold it to the Food Network. So, Asian Food Channel is now known as Asian Food Network. And when I did that and I finished that in 2013, I transitioned to be a venture capitalist because I really wanted to give back to the community. I saw so many other entrepreneurs that were all going through the same problems, uh, the same challenges, especially in funding, that I said, look, I've got to bring it as well. And the key issue uh, a decade ago was Series A. So that's what we did. And we raised our first fund at $90 million. We were very fortunate to invest in, as you said, you know, Gojek, which I think it should be uh, worth in excess of $30 billion, hopefully when it IPOs later on this year. Uh, but since then, we've also invested in about 33 other companies. And I think we have about 3 or $4 billion companies in the portfolio to date, which if you think about it is... A crazy statistic, right? There's almost like a 10% hit rate. And how do we do that? I mean, we're not that good. I think it's just that we've been at you know, an ecosystem that's growing, exploding, and we're there at the right place at the right time. And then we've uh, applied a lot of the methodologies that I learned uh, going through the Kaufman Fellowship. And uh, I think after decades of effort, that's where we are today. So we are a team of about 32 people, I want to say, and we're spread across... Uh, six countries in Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia is such an important part of the global ecosystem with technology companies being built. What are you seeing as some of the exciting things that are happening in Southeast Asia that is allowing so many great companies to be built? 
Well, the first thing that we're seeing is really the Goldilocks moment for Southeast Asia. Uh, what I mean by that was over the decade, we've just seen uh, you know, 650 million people get onto the internet, mostly through mobile phone, uh, 4G penetration, and the population has basically uh, been trained to use digital services. A lot of times, the first time people are touching banking or lending, uh, so a lot of times people are using communications, uh, video conferencing, that's all over the mobile phone and the internet. So that's the first very interesting phenomenon. I think even China didn't have that straight to market. China had a PC generation and then they did gaming and then they moved over to mobile phone. You know, Southeast Asia, and I call it the genesis since 2010 because prior to that, there were other sort of, uh, I would say, false starts to the whole ecosystem. But over the decade, this is a, the world's first truly mobile-centric e internet economy. The other Goldilocks moment that's happening for Southeast Asia is the regulatory framework. You know, I think we talked a lot of LPs and they view Asia historically primarily as just China. You know, if it's Asia venture, it's investing in China. Well, now with all the regulatory issues and the change in temperature about investing in China, I don't think people are going to abandon China completely, but they're going to have to augment. They've already made their investments into India, and I think India is going to do very well. But the last sort of bastion of large populations which can generate billion-dollar outcomes is Southeast Asia. So it's really a, a Goldilocks moment uh, for the entire ecosystem, but it's taken 10 years. Such an exciting time to be an investor in Singapore. Now, let's go into this, the Asian food channel. What were you, what made that come about? Were you into food or did you like to cook? I know you like to cook now, but tell us about how you got into the Asian food channel. I wanted to be a TV chef. I really did, Jeff. Did you just love watching like TV chefs on, on you know, what was, who was your favorite TV chef? Well, the genesis of Asian Food Channel was very interesting because I just wanted to be a TV chef. Uh, I was very inspired by Jamie Oliver, uh, for sure. And I was inspired. I said, this is so easy. All you have to do is just go in front of a camera and talk. And he sound, looks like he has so much fun. But the reality <laughs> is that it's really, really hard. There are very few chefs in the world who can walk and talk and chew gum. I, there's actually three episodes of me uh, as a TV chef stuck in an archive, which I will not mention. But the production company did such a terrible job and the broadcaster, in my opinion, did such a terrible job. I said, I bet I could do this myself. And fortunately, I was going through INSEAD at that point of time. And one of my ex-bosses was in the cable business and he identified to me that there was a dearth of TV channels in Asia and especially lifestyle channels, which are very popular. And so I saw this window where I could actually launch a, a television channel uh, focused on food. And I was astounded by the fact that there was no, uh, you know, no one actually attempting to do it. And so in life, sometimes you just go back to first principles and you just see that opportunity and you become the thing that, that, that brings everything back to the average because it was just astounding that no one actually thought of this idea before we did. Amazing story with, with the Asian Food Channel, Hiana. Just, I love this idea of, you know, wanting to be this, this TV chef and then just going after it, recognizing that there was opportunities, there were, weren't enough lifestyle TV channels in Southeast Asia, and you went for it. What's, what is your favorite dish to cook? Well, Jeff, that's a very hard question because it's not like people have not asked me that question before. I think of it this way. I get obsessed about certain things because it's always about trying to be excellent 
about something. I think during the, uh, the, the lockdown, I was doing a lot of sourdough bread. And then in November last year, somebody was importing Italian 500 degree centigrade pizza ovens. You know, the big ones that get the really puffy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I actually installed one in the office. We have a big balcony in the office. And so my current obsession is cooking uh, big fluffy pizzas. And I think I'm getting quite good at it. Amazing. I actually showed my wife some of your sourdough when you were making sourdough and she was inspired and she started her own. We have our own sourdough starter, which by the way, is just, it's like having another child. You have to keep it alive and feed it and do all these things with your sourdough starter. It's uh, it's incredible. But anybody that is looking for cooking tips, Heon is your go-to person. There's so many great things there. Okay. So Heon, let's talk about you know, when you look at you from outside looking in, you're the successful investor, successful family man. Uh, you're very grounded and very thoughtful. That didn't just happen overnight. Why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the formative experiences? And, and let's start with, I always love to start with parents. Like, tell me a little bit about your parents and your upbringing and what, what that was like for you. So Jeff, my background is very middle class. Uh, I grew up in a nice house, almost like a white picket fence house in uh, suburbia in Singapore. I have two older sisters, and my dad was a computer programmer. So uh, he was actually someone who was very open in the sense that he just wanted to make sure that we were taught the good moral values. And he never guided me to do anything. Like I wasn't the Asian kid who had to play piano. He just left me alone. He observed what I like to do. And I liked reading encyclopedias. That was the thing that I did, you know. I liked uh, tinkering and opening up... uh, radios. Uh, he could see that I had a hidden sort of engineering passion for me. Thankfully, he was one of the first few computer engineers in Singapore. So he would bring back a computer back from Shell. He was the, you know, the IT head of Shell. There was no CTO in those days. And I started tinkering with computers at the age of six. And it wasn't even DOS. It wasn't even Windows. It was a thing called CPM, Command Process Module, which is really, really, if I think back at it, I'm probably the only kid in Singapore who had access to a computer doing you know, relatively low-level programming. But that was kind of like the upbringing. My father was somebody who I really loved uh, and really has inspired me uh, to just go and chart my own you know, path, so as to speak. So that was kind of like a very interesting thing because in Singapore, a lot of other people tend to have very fixed uh, thinking about where you're supposed to go. You got to be a doctor, you got to be a lawyer, you got to be an accountant. Don't get me wrong. My dad wanted me to be a lawyer because one of his good friends was a very, very successful lawyer. And so the pressures of academics came through. I ended up doing a law degree at Oxford And then I became a banker and I followed the path that was supposed to be taken by Singaporeans. And then when I became a banker back in Singapore, working for Solomon, uh, I started up the tech team as the junior associate. And I started meeting all these entrepreneurs, these very adventurous human beings. And I think that's when it all locked back in. And I said, goodness, you know, what am I doing as a banker? Why why am I wasting my time? I, I should go out and do it. Um, had I known how difficult it was to be an entrepreneur, I, maybe I wouldn't have done it. But I think it's always about being slightly foolhardy. And I, you know, I, I left banking. I went to China. I started up my first company there. I didn't do very well. Came back, went to INSEAD, and then did Asian Food Channel. That, in a nutshell, is who I am. I'm just very much about first principles, um, but really just very comfortable background. And then ended up being 
an entrepreneur. It's, it's kind of weird. I, it's a bit like Eric Clapton. You know, he was a middle-class guy, but he ended up being a musician. Uh, very well-balanced fundamentally. I love that. I love that you, you, you clearly from your dad got this idea of being able to chart your own path. He didn't force you to do anything specific. Um, and, and that um, enabled you to really follow your different learning paths. What did you, what about your mom? Tell us a little bit about your mom. My mom is a very fascinating character. She, she's actually, obviously in those days, uh, it wasn't very much about dual income. So she was a, a housewife as we call it. So, so from that perspective, uh, she was always there. Uh, she fed us, she clothed us, she cooked meals for us. Uh, so that was very well, well balanced uh, as a background. However, my dad, my mom is unbelievable with numbers. It's just one of those weird things. Uh, she she would day trade stocks while ironing, you know, in the old days with the teletext, and she'd actually make money. And then my dad would not make money, and it was always one of those humorous things that I saw. I think I got a lot of my numerical skills from my mom. I got a lot of the EQ from my dad. Amazing. So having this background from from both a, two different parents that supported you, that gave you these uh, this this passion for for numbers and for following your own path. You know, and you're, and then you have this kind of this engineering bent in you that you love to tinker and you love to read. <laughs> like who, who is a kid loves to read encyclopedias? But these are these are some of the formative experiences. What were maybe some of the the technologies that you were excited about as a as a child and young adult? Were you were you still tinkering with computers? What were some of the things that really got you excited? Yeah. So one thing that I really have to give credit to my dad was that he never spoiled me. So he never really bought like you know expensive things. And in the 80s, I don't know if you guys remember, remote control cars, remote control car racing was a big thing. And until today in the office, I have like 10 remote control cars, uh, which I have slowly bought back over the years. Amazing. But that was like, that was, yeah, that was like um, the first sort of applied engineering that I got involved. And I still remember the story where in those days, if you wanted to charge the battery, uh, you had this fancy thing called a peak charger where it would monitor the voltage and automatically cut off so you wouldn't damage the batteries. If you didn't have that, you could just leave the battery there for like 45 minutes and it, if it didn't blow up, it, it'd be destroyed. So the peak charger was an amazing thing, but it was like 125 Singapore dollars, which in those days was a lot of money. I actually went to the library. I looked up all these digital analog electronics. I went to the you know electronic shop and I tried to buy these things. I literally tried to make a peak charger uh, from you know from scratch because I didn't have you know $125. My dad refused to give me $125. I didn't succeed. I got pretty close. But I learned a lot of applied electronics along the way. I learned how to solder. So I've always had that yearning to do the thing that you know people say you can't do. Like, oh, you know what, Hien, you know, you can't be a TV chef or or, or rather, you know, I'm not gonna pay you to be a TV chef. I'd be like, oh for God's sake, you know. I'm going to make a TV channel. It's always been in me. And I think that's because when I was younger, my dad never said, you can't do this. And that, I think maybe that was his mistake. He should have said that because I just go around the world going, really? You can't be a venture capitalist? Why don't we just be a venture capitalist? Why don't just, I'm just going to start this from scratch. And that's kind of like the energy that I've always had, despite the fact that I'm actually quite balanced a human being. I, I never went through massive struggles when I was young. You know, a lot of times you hear these kind of very dramatic founding stories. That's not me. So what were some of, as you were going through this, this path and, you know, this learning that you, you know, you had this yearning to do things that people said you couldn't do. What were some of the, 
the, the inflection points that you went through? Maybe what were some of the challenges? As you just said, you didn't have any major challenges, but everybody goes through things where you recognize, hey, you know, maybe I wasn't meant to do that, or maybe I learned that this is what I really want to be doing. Give us, give us a sense of some of the inflection points or learnings that you had in your formative years. So there were two things that I always talk about, which I think are very big inflection points. And the first one was in education relatively early. Uh, when my dad went to England, uh, he was posted there. I followed him and I went to a British public school. And I was an Asian kid, you know, in the 90s, going to a very uh, stiff British public school. You must remember in Singapore, if you're a Chinese person, you are the majority race. You don't really face racism. And at the age of 16, this was the first time I actually you know, felt like an outsider. And uh, it was a very, very forging moment. You know, a lot of insecurities started to appear. Uh, a lot of questioning started to appear. It, people just didn't accept you for who you were. And today I have this sort of real underdog sense and real passion to sort of protect the underdog, which is what an entrepreneur is. Because I went through you know, pretty rough times, I would say, in the British public school. But I also learned the chops. I soon I learned how to fit in. I learned how to get, buy the right newspaper, uh, eat the right way, and, 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 and be a bit more international. And so those were the first formative years. The second big formative uh, decade, I would say, was actually Asian Food Channel. You know, I always joke about the fact that I almost went bankrupt three times running that uh, television network. Uh, I had to hold a fixed asset through the deepest financial crisis, the global financial crisis, where the media business plummeted by 60%, and I still had satellites that I had to pay. Uh, I, I restructured the company, I think, twice. Uh, it, it wasn't a pretty sight, you know. Uh, the shareholding just kept on going down. You had to top up with options. I went through a lot. Uh, along the way, during uh, Asian Food Channel, I, I, I didn't actually hold on to my first marriage. Uh, you know, I actually had essentially blown up my first marriage because I was so, so stressed out by running the company. I'm lucky that now you know, I have three kids and a wife who still tolerates me. But I think those 10 years as an entrepreneur really forged who I was and gives me such empathy and sympathy for the craft that I am in today. That's kind of like the two forging fires I, I remember, you know, over the course of my life. So, so great to hear both of those. I appreciate you sharing those, Hian. And I can see some themes, but I'm wondering just from you, what were maybe the one or two or three greatest learnings that you take from both being, you know, for the first time feeling like an outsider in, in school and, and learning how to adapt and how to, how to kind of survive and thrive in that environment? And then also with the persistence that it took to stick with a business that almost went bankrupt three times, that, that you certainly survived through um, some personal uh, hardships. What were some of your kind of key learnings that you take from those inflection points, from those formative experiences? I think the first thing is that things take time. You know, I think that when I transitioned from being, I say, an investment banker to being an entrepreneur, you know, when you're in a investment banking or say you're in consulting, you say in two years time, I'm going to be an associate. In three years time, I'm going to be a VP. In four years time, I'm going to be an MD. And then you benchmark yourself and say, if I don't do that, then therefore I'm, I'm not going to be, I'm not successful. Well, in entrepreneurship, there are moments, there are moments, there are months when nothing happens and then suddenly everything happens. I remember in Asian Food Channel, you know, when we sold the company, it, it took us about a year and a half, but as little as 12 months before we even started the process, no one called us. 
no one's I, I just was wondering like when are we gonna ever either IPO or sell this company? And then suddenly, you know, everybody woke up to this idea that they need assets in Asia. Uh, Food Network woke up, Discovery Network woke up. And then within six months, everybody was coming to us and saying, hey, uh, would you like to be acquired? Timing, things like this take time. And I learned that uh, you cannot rush things. So therefore, the second thing is you just have to be persistent. And more importantly, you just have to protect the downside. Things generally take longer than expected. And therefore, you have to be a little bit more conservative in your projections, or you must always have that little reserve somewhere uh, just in case things, uh, you know, start to turn against your favor. Those are the things that I think you don't really learn unless you've actually gone through it. Uh, it really helps that now that I'm a venture capitalist and I talk to entrepreneurs, I say like, you know, hey, just be careful. Uh, this is good times, but, you know, take the money, take the money, take the raise now. Uh, things like that are you know, very different in my intuition because I've gone through it over the past decade before I became a venture capitalist. And so what was the tipping point that then uh, brought you after selling Asian Food Channel? Uh, what was the tipping point that brought you to wanting to be a venture capitalist? What, tell us, walk us through that a little bit. It was not only just whether I want to be a venture capitalist, but whether I want to be a venture capitalist in Southeast Asia. I remember this, that I started off as an angel investor. And I said to myself, if I ever survived as an entrepreneur for 10 years, maybe I might know something. Maybe I could bring, give back something to the community. So around 2010, I started angel investing. And at that point in time, I was thinking, you know, Southeast Asia, is this, is this really happening? But when we saw the mobile phone adoption happening, and more importantly, people were migrating to the region. Singapore had done such a great job. It wasn't just Singaporeans trying to start companies. It's people from all around the world, from the region, who had migrated to Singapore saying, this is the region, this is the place where I want to be. That I realized, you know what, after doing this for 10 years, maybe the next generation of guys will have a more accelerated uh, success path. And then I saw the fact that there wasn't enough capital. I, I, I really saw the fact that, you know, the risk aversion that is so common to you see in, in, in Asia, especially in Singapore, uh, was still there. And, and so I was very inspired once I saw the Asian Food Channel to put my money <laughs> where my mouth is and said, I'm going to invest in these things. You guys don't want to invest in it? That's fine. I'm going to invest in it. And then before you know it, people said, well, why don't you start up a fund? Because I'll back you since you're coming in. But one of the things about open space is that we're still owner-operated, Right. Uh, this is my money-making scheme as it is my LPs. Uh, it, it, that goes a long way when you're fundraising, especially when you don't have that long a track record, when people see that you're all in. You know, sometimes you'll see an LP with a bit of a gleam in his eye because I know what you're doing because you know, you're all in. Well, you know what? I'm going to come along for the ride because I love the fact that people are all in. Uh, what else are you going to do? You're going to you know, either be successful or die trying. And so I'll put my money uh, alongside you. Amazing. And so you are now your Coffin Fellow. You're a Coffin Fellow from Class 20. So you've been graduated for a couple of years now. And as you think about putting your kind of your money where your mouth is and really diving into being a venture capitalist, you know, Coffin Fellows, we talk a lot about this framework for success and what some of the best investors in the world do. As you're now looking in the rearview mirror, having gone through the Coffin Fellows program, why don't you tell us a little bit about how that applies to you as an investor and maybe start with your zone of genius. How did you identify what your zone of genius is and what, what is that today? And how are you applying that to your investing? It turns out that I'm pretty good, I think, 
at going to first principles. So if you can imagine the, you know, investing in Southeast Asia, and after 10 years now, we have a fighting chance of seeing exits, billion dollar exits. 10 years ago, to actually say, I'm going to believe that in 10 years time, this thing will have a billion dollar outcome. That comes from uh, having the zone of genius of really having the belief in first principles, seeing the demographics, seeing on ground, because no one else is seeing this, right? The flow of entrepreneurs, great ideas, internet adoption, and then having the courage to say, you know what, that's what's going to happen. I don't need the data point to say that, oh, there are no billion dollar exits while you're doing it. That kind of first principle thinking, and I'm always inspired by, and this is so cheesy, like Elon Musk and, you know, Chamath Palahapatiya. I, I watch their YouTube videos late at night because it reinforces that this is how things happen in order to change. And then the other thing is that once I piece that together, I always have a knack for kind of like having a much shorter vision. So the joke in the firm is that Hien, Hien, Hien is the ability to kind of predict things 18 months into the future. And so I think that's a very interesting so-called zone of genius. Uh, I'm very focused at it. I spend a lot of time thinking about it and I come up with thesis. I don't get it right all the time, but I like to think that so far I've had a good hit rate. And how does that map then to your investment thesis? If you are the one that is you know, able to see kind of around the corner in the next 12 to 18 months, how does that map to your thesis? I'll be very specific about it, right? So we invested into Indonesia. We invested into Gojek in 2014 when no one believed in Indonesia and no one believed that you know Nadim could do the ride-hailing thing on motorcycles. But fundamentally, we saw the opportunity there. Uh, fast forward five years later, now today, everyone believes in Indonesia. You know what the firm is doing? We're believing in Philippines. We're believing in Thailand. I'm very vocal to say that, you know, I think the opportunity set in the other countries outside of Indonesia is equally and sometimes even better than Indonesia. And the way I manifest that, I tell the team, remember, when we invested into Gojek, Indonesia was not Indonesia. You know, the thing that, you know, everyone, reporters talk about, LPs ask. That's a very, very first principle way of thinking about it internally. And I'm have the courage to say that externally because I believe that's going to be true. I believe they're going to be huge billion dollar outcomes in Philippines, in Thailand. I, how could you not, how could you miss Thailand? Thailand is the second largest economy after Indonesia. Actually on the GDP per cap is way higher than Indonesia, strong middle class. We've invested in financial services. We invested in wealth management, a rocking stock exchange. But guess what? If you ask like a lot of people, they're still not convinced that Thailand's going to come up with a billion dollar tech company. Watch this space in two, three years time. You heard it here first. I love that. And then, so the third piece of the framework is this, or the third pillar is this idea of your personal brand. And, you know, we like to describe this as the promise of the experience. You know, what is the experience that I as an entrepreneur have with you as an investor? What would you say is that promise of the experience with Heon? Or how do you think about your personal brand as it applies to your investing? Very straight talking. Uh, you always un, you always get what you see. I don't mince my words. If I don't agree with you, I'll try to explain it to you in first principles. I will you know, try to persuade you otherwise. But at the end of the day, it's your company. So I, I won't uh, try and rain down hard, but know the consequences. We can check back. Was the ex-entrepreneur that now is the venture capitalist. That's kind of like the personal brand, somebody who really wears his heart on his sleeves. Sometimes I attract a fair amount of criticism for it because I will say things that are not the, the nicest, but uh, 
I feel like I have the courage to do that. That's the personal brand. Have the courage to speak the truth. Maybe that's what it is. Have the courage to speak the truth. I love that because the truth will always prevail. The truth will always prevail. <laughs> exactly. And then in the last piece of the framework, we talk about the human dynamic piece. And I know this is something that's super important to you, both from the way that you run your firm, but also just for you personally. Tell me a little bit about how that piece, this pillar or piece of the framework applies to what you do in your personal and professional life. Yeah. So uh, there are a lot of people who have thought about this. We've just copied a lot of things. And what we've decided to copy on are two things, which is one, having high performance teams. And two is having a growth mindset. Now, it's easy to just stop there, right? And say, hey, great. We have a high performing team and we have a growth mindset. But the proof of the pudding is whether your organization actually reflects that. So what are the things we do? Well, first of all, uh, we actually have an, you know, a very, very rigorous uh, voting and 360 feedback mechanism. I always tell people who just joined the firm, like, you don't have to be nice to me. Or you don't have to try and impress me. I don't really work with you that often. You just joined the firm. Go impress all the rest of the colleagues that you work with on a day-to-day -day basis because those people are the people who are going to vote you up the ladder and make you successful in your career. You do not have to be nice to Hien. And then they start to sweat. And I said, because you know what? At the end of the year, we do a 360 feedback. It's fully transparent, Jeff. You know, everyone gets ranked in the firm, including myself. Everyone gets anonymous feedback. I know exactly what the team is pissed off about Hien. <laughs> and I want to do that because next time when I'm not the partner of the firm, that guy or girl still has to do the 360 feedback because it's entrenched in the culture of the firm. The net result is we had to, about two years ago, go through a bit of a challenging time because the firm actually voted for the next generation of leadership. And a few folks which are very, very good but didn't get you know, the vote had to be transitioned out of the firm. Today, we have you know, a very identifiable uh, you know, two or three people which I know will be the next partnership group of the firm. Uh, the people who are helm fund four and fund five, I'll still be around. But you know, if I don't let those people you know, grow, they will leave and they will start other firms. We've seen this in the industry. So that growth mindset, the ability to put yourself at the mercy of the bigger mission, which is to build a firm, Jeff. You know, that to me, I'm going to do it because I expect the next generation of people who are partners at Open Space to do that as well. And that is how I feel. It's the only way we're going to have excellence and you know, a great institution for first principle, fun formation, first principle thinking. Open Space went through a branding exercise. We came up with the concept of active intelligence. And we're going to roll this out as the, as the as months go by. We are always on the ground, maybe sometimes like the CIA, gathering intelligence. We're also using our brain with intelligence, but we are active. We are seeking out the truth, and we want to make sure that our internal resources also reflect that as well. I love this because you know many people have built a, or have raised a fund or have even have built a firm, but much fewer have built a franchise. And what you're talking about is being super thoughtful about the next generation of your firm so that this, this is a legacy firm. This is built into a franchise that lasts well beyond you and the current partnership group uh, that you have uh, leading the firm right now. Such an important learning for people. You know, Jeff, it's so difficult because... One of the things that we talk about internally is uh, that person authentic to the mission, right? So if I make somebody a partner, 
What I'm worried about is the ecosystem said, what? That guy made partner at open space? Or the entrepreneur goes like, I'd rather deal with you here, not that guy you just made partner. Or you know, internally, people go like, I'm not going to follow this guy. So you don't want to set people up for failure. And I've seen this a lot of times when people get promoted too early, or maybe they just get given a big title because they want to raise another fund. Uh, we're very disciplined, and I don't want to set people up for failure. So I am confident that the people will groom themselves. And when we finally say to everybody internally, externally, so-and-so is now a partner, the entire ecosystem will just say, what took you so long? That guy deserves it. And the transition will be very, very seamless. Love that attention. And I love how intentional you are about building the next generation in your firm, men and women that are that are focused on, you know, really investing in these great entrepreneurs in Southeast Asia. What do you think are the most important things that we should be focusing on as a society in our investments and in supporting entrepreneurs? What are some of the things that you believe are going to come out of or need to come out of Southeast Asia over the next, you know, decade to multiple decades? I've heard so many people say we've got to make uh, use technology to improve society or improve the climate. You know, I've heard Chamath talk about it. I've heard so many people talk about it. But at this point in time in Southeast Asia, the bar is so low that anything we do, almost anything we do, moves the needle. If we roll out digital banking, uh, if we give free and fair access to loans, you know, I don't even need to go into altruism. I just need to make sure that you know, capital or, or loans or education, if we can get digital education out there, if I can lower the cost of healthcare, the alignment of profit making as well as moving efficiency and increasing society is, I can see the path because the bar is so low. There is so much to do in Southeast Asia. And that's one of the things I get very excited about. So uh, we have an ESG uh, mandate. Uh, we have received ESG money. I have an ESG team internally. And it's not that difficult to align a lot of the investments that we do to a lot of the ESG objectives. So I think we're lucky that way in Southeast Asia. But if you ask me whether I fully fleshed out that idea, I, still, I, I think it's still coalescing in my mind. How has Coffin Fellows shaped your journey as an investor, both not only as an investor, but also as a, as a husband, as a father, as a human being? Talk to us about where, where Coffin Fellows falls in your narrative. So I think the, one of the amazing things about the Kaufman Fellowship is the ability to be very self-aware and also the safe space that the Kaufman Network provided for you to explore a lot of things that you felt needed to be improved or built upon. And I didn't really get it. And I remember all the previous classes go like, trust me, there'll be a lot of crying, there'll be a lot of hugging, but you're just going to 10x it out there. And then now I find myself saying that to the next class, like, don't worry, just embrace the system because one of the amazing things is you just have to confront a lot of the biases that you may have, a lot of the insecurities you may have, because it was such a safe place. That's why today I still encourage a lot of people to try and always have that support network around you. I know there are some other organizations that do a great job, but for Kaufman, that was the big takeaway for me. Amazing, Hion. You're an incredible investor, an incredible human being. Tell me, the, the last question I have for you is, as a father of daughters, 
What are the the things that you're focusing on with them to help them you know, make their way through this crazy time with COVID and become the next leaders in uh, in Singapore and Southeast Asia? What are the things that you maybe going back to first principles that you're helping them uh, as as they go through their formative years? I don't know if I should say this, but you know, like you, I feel very comfortable when you say like you're an amazing investor or like we are all trying to get through this the best as we can. Kids do not come with a user manual, Jeff. I realized I checked when they, when they delivered the baby to me, I looked at the, I couldn't find the CD-ROM or whatever. And, <laughs> you know, especially with, with, with daughters, um, I think the best piece of advice was again coming back to my dad was he said look just just try to teach them the right moral values because you can't control them. I think that's the thing that you know you try you try and be the best example to your kids. You you're not successful all the time. The number of times my kids go like daddy you were swearing. I'm like I'm at office. I'm allowed to swear. <laughs> but you know that you just try. Uh, I I don't know whether I can even say I'm a good dad. I mean my wife would give me a lot of feedback. We have 360 reviews in the house as well. But I think I always hark back to what my dad said, which is that always try to give them the sound moral principles that I've taught you, Hien, and uh, be the best example, living example you can. And I think uh, that's my current thesis on how to be a father. <laughs> well, I, I can tell you, I know your family, you're doing a great job. Both you and your amazing wife are doing a great job. So, Heon, from your focus on first principles and the things that you learned from your parents, you know, to your learnings of things take time and, and that you just have to be persistent. You have to continue to focus on the things that you're passionate about and continue to do them. You've developed into someone that has inspired many and certainly inspires me as a Coffin Fellow and as an investor in Southeast Asia, focusing on technologies across the globe. So grateful for you, for your friendship and for your willingness to join us on the podcast. I hope so. I hope I'm inspiring people because, you know, it is a lot of work and all of us put our hearts into it. And we just need to keep the ball rolling. We just need to keep the world going. And Jeff, if you need anything, just come and find us. We're hiding out in Singapore. We're so lucky to be here. But once this thing is over, we're going to branch out and see whatever help we can get across the region and spread the word uh, peace and love to you and your family too, sir. Amen, Hian. Thanks so much for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I enjoyed this a lot. That's a wrap. Tune in next week for another candid conversation on what makes a great VC investor with your host, The Kaufman Fellows. 